Hi and welcome to Defining Boundaries, a podcast about the interesting characters from our surveying and spatial industry and their unique perspectives on life and our industry. I'm Peter Cox and I use my 25 years of contacts as a surveyor and teacher to dig deep into the lives of others. Each fortnight, I delve into the life and times of people from all over the world who share the same profession and passions. Don't forget to subscribe to my channel, like, comment, feel free to share with your friends. Do you have a question about the surveying or spatial industry? Or would you like to join me for a chat? Or would you like to hear from someone in particular? If so, send me a message on LinkedIn or Instagram and we can catch up. This week, join me for part one of my chat with Dr. Craig Roberts from the University of New South Wales. So grab your drink, sit back, relax while we chat. Defining Boundaries with Peter Cox. My guest today is Dr. Craig Roberts. Craig was born and grew up in Adelaide. Growing up, Craig thought that maybe he might be a journalist. Well, we all know that that didn't happen and he is now a senior lecturer in surveying at the University of New South Wales. Craig has had approximately 30 years within the surveying industry and in that time, he's completed a PhD, three years in research organisations and two and a half years as a private surveyor. He has won a couple of SSSI awards in 2014 and 2020 for the National Education Development Award. And I'm sure that there has been plenty more awards over the years. Craig is extremely passionate about the surveying and geospatial industry. And I'm privileged to have worked with him on a few projects throughout the years I have known him. In his spare time, Craig's interests outside of surveying include rock climbing, cycling, dancing, Shakespeare, politics, a good banter, and taking the piss. I'm looking forward to this chat with Craig. So Craig, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me along. You're welcome. So tell me a little bit about uh, yourself. You were born in Adelaide itself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just born in, you know, suburban Glenelg Hospital, I think. Uh-huh. Um and grew up in Adelaide. Yeah, you know, went to school, went to uni. Um, I was involved in the Scouts a lot. Um, and, you know, so Cubs, Scouts, Venturers, Rovers. So that's kind of got seated an interest in, in the outdoors. Yeah, and um, w- just went to my local public comprehensive school, which is 50 metres from my house. Oh, nice. And um, <laughs> and it turned out to be a really great school, actually. So uh, unfortunately, it's no longer there. But oh. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, so and and I was I was pretty much in Adelaide until I was twenty three, and then I left, um, yeah. and headed overseas. Yeah. Okay. So you grew up there. You obviously finished year twelve there. Went to university there. Yep. What university? South Australian Inst- so there's a South Australian Institute of Technology at the levels. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's now called the University of South Australia. Um, but yeah, I so I did my surveying degree out there. So I finished. Uh, high school and went straight into uni. Yeah, okay. So no gap years. <laughs> no gaps. <laughs> and that choice was going straight into surveying? Yes, it was, yeah. How did that come about? Um, it came about from my um, my grandmother and my mum. Um, 
saw a letter to the editor which said that Australia needed surveyors written by Brenton Burford, who happened to be a senior lecturer out at the out at SAIT. Mm-hmm. And they had an open day. So I went to the open day. And if anyone's listening to this, we have open days at UNSW, first Saturday in September, mm-hmm. come along. Um, and um, I found out about surveying that it was an outdoor profession, um, that it needed maths, mainly geometry, uh, physics. And, you know, I was pretty involved. I was pretty interested in the outdoors. And I thought, oh, gee, a professional career involves the outdoors. It sounds pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. So it was really on the strength of that that I just decided there and then, right, I'll give surveying a go. And I started you know, my degree and really didn't know what I was getting myself in for, but yeah, I like it. Cool. So you didn't do any work experience or anything like that. It was just that careers kind of thing and off you went. Yeah, pretty much actually. And uh, yeah, to be honest, I was pretty lazy. I didn't really ask anyone about it too much. (laughs) I really didn't know what I was getting myself in for. It just seemed like a good thing to do, Yeah. you know, and you know, I was, yeah. It's funny. It's funny you say that because a lot of people that I speak to, you know, they're either they've done the work experience, they know that's what they want to do and they aim for that mark and they get into uni and then there's the other people that get a mark and go, oh, yeah, well, I, I guess I'll try that not, and not even knowing what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, th- I think that's partly the problem with our profession is that um, I think people have an impression of what it is that we do. Um, but when they come and actually speak to us yeah you know perhaps we turn that on the on its head a little bit and what I mean is a lot of people sort of associate surveying with you know old school black and white photos people standing on the side of the road with old instruments bashing through bush and you know and it, it is so different these days and, and 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 people are quite interested at what we now do when I start talking to them engaging them with what what surveyors yeah. now do so yeah, yeah. It, it has it has definitely come a, a long way mm. so how did you end up back in the university as an educator so Uh, so you did your university yep and then where did it go from there to end up where you are now okay so um we had our thesis presentations um and a bunch of surveyors come along to that and i got tapped on the shoulder after that and started working with david phillips proprietary limited a very small survey company in adelaide Mm -hmm. that was great david really gave me a great start and it was a very hard year for me, big, steep learning curve. Mm-hmm. And it was probably one of the hardest years of my life, my first year out. Okay. Um, but I really learned a lot. Um, and then I worked for another private surveyor. Um, oh, just for three weeks, actually, in the interim, because the, the recession was hitting in Australia. Oh. And so I did three weeks with Alexander and Simons, the, um, the largest survey company in Adelaide. Or maybe Fife's would dispute that. Anyway, a big, large survey company, only for three weeks. And then I worked for Alan Wilson. Uh, Alan D. Wilson, and that was not such a good experience. Um, but all the time, I was really, really interested in rock climbing. Mm-hmm. And all I wanted to do was to go overseas and go climbing in, you know, all of the fantastic mecca places. So the the recession hit uh, pretty badly. And in the early 90s, might have been June 92, um, I'd been saving money. And it just seemed like... Um, you know, work was slowing up and I'd be doing my boss a favour. So I went in with a resignation letter uh, and said, you know, I want to go for 12 months. And he didn't accept that. So I said, okay, see you later. I'm out of here. <laughs> and went to Yosemite. Yeah. So Yosemite in California, which is nice. the climbing mecca. Yeah. And basically hung out as a dirt bag in the pines, you know, in the camp four for, I don't know, four or five weeks or something like mm-hmm. that when you could. 
and just went climbing. And then from there, I just started meeting people. I met a guy, went and climbed a desert tower, went and lived in Colorado for a bit. And while I was in Colorado, um, I said to him, hey, I want to go up to Boulder mm. and um, want to go climbing in Boulder, Colorado, because that was the, the mecca in Colorado for climbing. Yeah. And um, he gave me a phone number. I rang this guy up and he picked me up from my youth hostel and he had a key ring which said Trimble GPS oh. on his key ring. And I said to him, oh, GPS, what do you know about GPS? And he said, oh, I work for this organisation called UNAVCO, the University Navstar Consortium, and we do, uh, we measure plate tectonics with GPS. And I was like, you've got to be joking. Seriously, I did a tutorial on this in year four, you know, like an assignment in year four. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that's amazing stuff, but I'll never be able to do it myself. And so we went climbing all weekend, had a great weekend. And he said, why don't you come into work on Monday? So I did. I walked into, into work and I was going ooh and ah at all of their GPS receivers. And <laughs> wow, this is amazing. And the boss came out and started talking to me about salary packages. And I said, uh, dude, you know, I'm Australian, right? You know, I don't have a visa or anything like that. And he said, don't worry, we'll sort that out for you. And it sort of was on again, off again for about oh, six months, but I stayed in, in touch. Um, I said to him at the time, actually, uh, I'm actually on my one year climbing trip. Um, and I kind of want to go to Europe and I want to go to Nepal. Uh, so can I come back? <laughs> pretty, pretty ballsy question. And the guy said, yeah, no worries. Yeah, just stay in touch. So, so wow. I went, I, I left the US and then I went to Europe and I was climbing in Europe for a while and uh, met this girl, but that's another story. And, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, a bunch of things happened. A bunch of things happened. I remember my father passed away and I had to go back to Australia. And then I was sort of marooned in Australia without any money. And then the job came up and I went to the US. And so I started in probably 93, I think, maybe okay. the middle of 93. And I started working at, at UNAVCO, which is still going. And well, actually, they're going strong. They're going really strong. They're a big research organisation, but doing plate tectonics using GPS. And they were interested in me because I'd been a private surveyor and I knew how to do surveying and they were all researchers. So um, I, I really felt like I could add value to their organisation. Yep. So how long did you work for them? So that was uh, 18 months I worked for them, partly because of the girl that I'd met. But anyway, so... And, and, <laughs> There's always a girl in the story. Yeah, there is. There is. More on that. Um, but... Um, Look, I, I, I just want to spend a moment talking about UNAVCO because they really are, a, it was a very interesting place to work in that um, it's called Un University Navstar Consortium because back mm -hmm. then a GPS receiver cost, gosh, 50 or 100,000 US dollars. And so universities would apply for grant funding to get enough money to maybe have two or maybe four. And as you know, only having you know, two GPS receivers doesn't help much. Yeah. So there was a bunch of universities which were banded together into a consortium and UNAVCO was located in Boulder, Colorado. Remember, that was the Mecca for rock climbing. So here I was living in the Mecca for rock climbing and working in my dream job as geodetic engineer, right? Um, and oh, it was amazing, you know. And um, basically my job was to be a box jockey. So um, that is uh, professors would come to us with um, National Science Foundation funding to go and do a project to measure plate tectonics with GPS for the first time ever. Right, because GPS meant that the idea was that you would measure a bunch of points on either side of a a continental plate, yeah, and you would measure these and you would measure the baselines between them, and you could measure to a thousand kilometres to a centimetre accuracy. This is in the early nineties. Yeah. Amazing, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. But you had to take a lot of data. So you had to sit on a mountain for five days, 24 mm-hmm. hours a day. Um, and once, once you did that, you'd go back again to the same marks and you would measure those same marks again and see the differences in the baselines. So if the baselines got shorter, then it meant that the plates were converging and if the baselines got further apart then it got larger then they're expanding so that was the basic idea of it yeah mm-hmm. so you know it was the sort of job where the boss would come into the office and say um hey listen uh, we've got a job coming up in um a month in nepal so we need you to go along as the geodetic engineer and we're going to introduce to the professor and he's going to run the project and, da, 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 da. and then after that it'd be like uh, oh and there's another job in ethiopia so if you can just go to germany for three days and wait and then shoot down to ethiopia so then i went there and worked on the east african yeah. rift um and that was like a year after the civil war had finished so there was people walking around with guns everywhere <laughs> it was kind of interesting um i went to argentina so we did the largest GPS survey ever at the time, the campaign survey all the way up the Andes. So I was in charge of Argentina and my colleague was in Chile. Mm-hmm. So we were measuring GPS all the way up the spine of the Andes. And then my last job was in Indonesia, um, which Indonesia is an incredibly interesting country. Tectonically, there's all sorts of movements happening everywhere there. And so really, but I was what I was doing was logistics. So I'd go into the country with all of the boxes, you know, like maybe 36 boxes of gear, mm. get it into the country, get it through customs, which was interesting. Then we would educate the local surveyors, right? So we'd get to meet the local surveyors, many of which had never used wow. GPS. Yeah. And we'd talk to them about how to use it. And then we'd all go out and deploy. They were all surveyors, right? So they know what they're doing, but they've yep. just never used GPS. Yeah. Yeah. And so then, and then collect all the data and all the data would come back and I'd have to collect all the data, archive all the data, package up all the boxes, get them out of the country, get all the data back. Cause that's what was important. Thank our, uh, you know, local workers. And then, you know, on to the next job. Absolutely. So it, fantastic job, absolutely fantastic job. And for a single, well, not so single 25 year old, <laughs> you know, it, it just the absolute dream job really. Yeah. yeah. So you did that for 18 months. Yep. Obviously, somebody at home waiting for you. <laughs> no, no, German. Oh, German. Okay. Mm, mm, yeah, that German girl. Yeah, yeah. So um, I was pretty smitten with this German girl who I'd met previously at my European trip. Uh-huh. And so we, she'd managed to come over to Boulder for a little bit and I chased her to Canada for a bit and we were sort of chasing each other around. And I thought, right, this is it. I'm serious about this girl. So I'm going to resign from my dream job and go to Germany and learn German. So that's what I did. And um, I ended up living in Germany for two and a half years. And while I was there, I uh, managed to, um, well, firstly, I worked under the table as a surveyor, which was really good, really interesting to work in Germany, right? In German. So <laughs> so measuring distances and things like that, the language is really funny yeah, yeah. Um, and, and complicated. So that was, that was very interesting. Um, it is, I think, I think um, German is, a very complicated language too. Oh, no, I don't really agree with that. I think if you're an English speaker, it's actually not so hard to learn. Um, but some of the, the, the words work funny. So I'll, I'll give you an example. If you're measuring a distance and it was, um, let's say, 37.932. So in German, 37 is like saying 7 and 30. So 37. Yeah. Right. So if you were to measure 37.932, that would be 37.392. So they're saying the so whole thing. So three and 92. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's seven and 30.3 and 92. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, <laughs> so you have to be careful. You don't transcribe well, numbers. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and that's one of the um, things that always teach the students is to, to triple check your, what you're yeah. reading. And so you've got to think twice about what you're actually putting down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was really interesting. So I worked under the table as a surveyor, but, and I was just basically there learning German and climbing because you get to go climbing the European Alps, right? I remember this is all about my climbing trip. Yes. So yeah. living in the US, it was climbing, climbing, climbing. Going to Germany, it was climbing, climbing, climbing. Go to Spain, go to France, go to Italy. You know, we'd look at the weather on the weekend and if the weather was going to be crappy in Germany, which it usually was, then we'd leave and drive over the Brenner Pass to Italy and go climbing the Dolomites on the weekend. It's five oh. hours drive. So, you know, I go climbing on the weekend and then come back and then back to, you know, whatever we're doing on Monday. So mm-hmm. that was my life in Germany. Fantastic. And I learned German really quickly and um, felt really comfortable in the language. And, you know, I used to read the paper and had a car. And so I was having a great life living in Germany. And I then rang up the GFZ, which is the similar organization to UNAVCO in Germany. So it's the Geoforschungszentrum. Uh-huh. The, the geo research center yeah. um, who are also very, very strong in research these days. Um, and they had originally set up in Potsdam. I was living in Munich in the South cause I wanted to be close to the mountains. So I could yeah. go climbing. Of course. <laughs> um, but um, Potsdam is up near um, Berlin uh-huh. and very famous place. And in fact, um, I, I, I rang up and asked for an interview Oh, I just asked to speak to them and they said, oh, can you do continuously operating GPS? And I said, yes. I'd never actually done it, but I said, yes. And they said, can you come for an interview tomorrow? And I said, yes, what time? And they said, nine o'clock. And I said, I'll be there. And I put the phone down and I was like, oh, um, how am I going to get from Munich to Berlin? It's like 600 kilometers and I didn't, wasn't quite sure how I was going to do it, <laughs> um, but I managed to do it. And I had an interview with uh, Christoph Reigbach, who's a very famous professor in satellite geodesy. Uh-huh. And I had a sentence all lined up in German. And he said to me, let's just do it in English. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and he told me, and I had a great interview. And, and he showed me his office where he worked. And, and he was working on Helmut's desk. So we talk in, in you know, surveying about the helmet transformation, yep, the yep. seven parameter helmet transformation. Yeah. This was Helmut's office. Oh, wow from the 1880s yeah and I was having wow. an interview to to go and work as a box jockey for the GFZ so and they basically needed someone really quickly to go to Indonesia and I'd already been to Indonesia yeah. with the Americans mm. and I knew all the people that they were going to work with so I just happened to be the right person at the right time oh, typical wow. me right I've had so much luck <laughs> in my life I just show up and bang things happen um and so yeah I ended up working for the GFZ initially they didn't pay me they just gave me um per diem but I knew that per diem in in Indonesia was incredibly, it was incredibly cheap to live in, in Indonesia. And so what they paid me was, uh, turned out to be a really good salary, right? Yeah. Um, just in per diem, no salary. Mm-hmm. And like, for example, I stayed in a hotel in, or not a hotel, but a little kosong in Sulawesi for 35 cents one night. It wasn't very good. But it was <laughs> <laughs> so so that, was, that was my way in with the GFZ and they ended up, I ended up getting a, a proper job with them rather than just being the field guy um, down in the South in Oberfaffenhofen. Don't, don't say that with a mouthful of wheat beans. No. Um, right. um, and, and that was working with the, the, uh, with the GFZ, but located d- close to Munich. So I could live in Munich and mm-hmm. commute every day. And I was working, I just basically got trained how to use a software, which did orbit determination for a number of satellites uh, because 
the GFZ was located on the DLR, which is like the German NASA, so yeah. um, the DLR, and and they had a number of satellite missions that they were launching, and they needed to do orbit determination on on these satellites. So they were oh, using God. satellite laser ranging to measure to the satellites and determine orbits. And I just had to make sure. Actually, the main job was they had the GFZ one satellite, um, which was really just like a football with prisms on it. Mm. that they launched from the Mir space station. Do you remember the Russian Mir yeah, space station? Yeah, yeah. They launched that from the Mir space station, basically kicked it out of the doors, and it was a passive satellite which just sat and orbited with prisms, and they would shoot it with satellite laser ranging and try and work out the orbit um, for gravity studies. And it was very low Earth orbit, but mm. my job was to make sure that it didn't crash into the Mir space station <laughs> because it's a big hunker. Uh, it's a big hunk of you know football it was quite heavy yeah um and it was slowly slowly decaying in its orbit whereas the Mir space station because it's quite big would decay much slower in its or uh, much faster so it would drop about a kilometer a month and um the uh, and then they would do um maneuvers every now and then to raise it back up to its orbit at about 350 400 kilometers uh -huh. meanwhile the gfz1 satellite was just dropping 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 and it was going to be up there for a few years and they were just taking measurements to try and work out the gravity field of the earth so the germans doing a lot of science geodetic science yeah. and so i was involved in that at a very low level i was operational kind of guy yeah. but again surrounded by scientists and surrounded by science and you know they would have lunchtime seminars and people would come along and speak and you know just fascinating to be involved in this stuff which i kind of felt like was the formula one of surveying i was still yeah. surveying the principles are just surveying mm. but the formula one of surveying and surveying operational surveyors benefit from all of this kind of scientific work so uh, just an absolute wonderful opportunity for me that five years overseas i did lots of climbing had you know fun with a German girl, traveled, saw a lot of things, learned a language and worked with a whole bunch of research organizations. Just absolutely ter terrific. I was so, so lucky. Yeah, it sounds, mm. it sounds, sounds like a rock star lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe I'm, maybe I'm sort of making it a little bit better than what it was, but it was really was, really was terrific and continues to this day. I'm, I'm a big, fan of Germans whenever I meet Germans I always oh hello you know and try and speak German to them and you know you know and and just I have such fond memories I had such a wonderful wonderful time they're wonderful people yeah, yeah. so what brought you back to Australia oh the big wide open spaces the the light yeah. um and you start to feel the tug of home. Maybe, maybe the, the thing that really got me over the line was I was living in Germany and, and one fellow said to me, one of my buddies, he said to me, so Craig, you know, you speak German really well. You've got a house, uh, you, know, you know, sorry, you've got a, a, you know, you've got a car, you've got a job, um, you know, you seem pretty comfortable in everything here. Why don't you take out German citizenship? And I just reacted. I oh. went off at him. Said, yeah, I'm not bloody giving up my Australian citizenship. And I'm having this out-of-body experience saying, wow, what, what's going on, Craig? How come you're reacting like that? And I kind of realised that, yeah, actually, this was good, but it was kind of coming to an end. So mm -hmm. I, was, I was pretty much away for five years. And I really did try and avoid Australia as much as possible. I wanted to immerse myself in the whole kind of European thing, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, and about that time, my boss at the GFZ told me, um, 
oh, Craig, one of your colleagues is here on sabbatical at the GFZ. I said, oh, who's that? And he said, Professor Chris Rizos. Actually, at the time, it was senior lecturer uh -huh. Chris Rizos. I said, oh, where is he? He said, oh, he's up in Potsdam and he's, you know, on sabbatical doing some work on da-da-da-da-da. And I said, oh, do you have his number? With a little agenda in the back of my mind. <laughs> and I rang him up and I put on my best Australian accent. said, g'day, Chris, how you going? It's Craig here. Oh, I'm, a, you know, Australian surveyor and thinking about doing some further study in Australia. What do you reckon? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he said, oh, uh, you're interested in, were well, you interested in the Masters? Are you? Yes, I am. And so he sent me some information and I started filling it out. Yeah. And the next day he rang me up and he said, so um, did you get my email? And I said, yeah, I did. And I started filling it out. And, and he said to me, um, well, would you be, so you're serious? And I said, yeah. And he said, would you be interested in a PhD? And I said, what's that? He <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> to explain to me what a PhD was. I mean, I knew, but I was sort of baiting him. Yeah. And then I said to him, so if I get a PhD, um, will I be, will that qualify me to be a taxi driver in Australia? <laughs> Because, you know, one of the problems we have, I think, in this country is um, that we don't recognise people who have, we don't recognise well enough people who have really good skills. Yeah. And so anyway, he convinced me and his project was, he said, I've, I've got all this money um, to do uh, volcano monitoring in Indonesia. And I said, oh, well, I've been to Indonesia a couple of times, once with Germans and once with the Americans and who you're working with. And it turns out I knew all these people. And he said, yeah. do you know about GPS? And it's just like, yeah, duh. I know heaps about GPS <laughs> and uh, operationally. So he was looking for a guy, not like your standard PhD student. He was looking for someone who was a bit hands-on who could get out in the field, who could do stuff, make stuff, build stuff. Um, and then analyze data and things like that. So that was my challenge was all the other side of things. Yeah. yeah right. So we arranged it there and then I said, let's, let's do this. You know, when's it going to start? And it was going to be 96, uh, yeah, term two or semester two in 96, about August 96. So I just basically um, packed, basically cut down everything I was doing in Germany, packed up everything I had back, back then. What a joy. I had two, two back, backpacks. That's it. That's my whole life two backpacks um i came home instead of going from germany straight to australia i went via the states and caught up with some of my friends in boulder and i had some unfinished business in the mountains there <laughs> it's a few climbs i wanted to do and then um back to australia and then i started my phd pretty much on my 30th birthday wow yeah i started my phd on my 30th birthday but i was single then right so i said goodbye to my german girlfriend I said you know basically basically we agreed that you know, I don't want to take you from Germany and you don't want to come to Australia ultimately. So let's just call it quits. So we did, which is a good decision, mm. you know. Mm. Yeah. yeah. God, everything's just kind of step-by-step has just fallen into place for you, hasn't it? For yeah, I know. I'm Like I say, I'm so bloody lucky. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and like, um, I just wanted to, I don't know, having been around research organizations and talking to a lot of people, I just found that I just had this curiosity, just interested in learning new stuff. And there was so much new stuff happening. And um, yeah. So, I mean, God, if they looked at my marks from uni, they probably wouldn't have taken me on. But um, <laughs> what, what I learned with a PhD was that it's, you don't necessarily have to be super smart to do a PhD. I mean, you've got to be reasonably smart, yeah. but you just got to work hard and you've got to own it. You know, like no one's going to do the work for you. 
you know, and it's almost, I guess it's almost like owning your own business. I'm, I'm, I'm hugely impressed with people who own their own business because they have to do the books. They have to do the marketing. They have to get the clients. They have to do everything. Right? Yeah. And in a similar way, the PhD was the same thing. This is my topic. I need to find out about this. I need to find out about that. You know, and if I didn't do anything for a few days, nothing happened. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, shit, I better do something. Yeah. Oh, I think that so, goes with just about anything to succeed is, you know, you've got to get in there and work for it. Yeah, Things absolutely. aren't just handed to you. And, you know, I've had students who weren't, you know, the most academic, but mm-hmm. they put their absolute butt into everything that they did mm-hmm. and they asked the questions and they gave yep. them to go. And, you know, some of those guys and girls are, are quite successful now because you can oh, see they absolutely. have that drive of putting that effort in. Yeah, and, and courageous too, you know, like they try something and they like they might put an assignment in or something like that and then they'll ask for feedback. Yes. It's often the hardest thing to do, you know, it's, it's just like facing up to yourself. They ask for the feedback and mm-hmm. it's just like, radio, you know, but and often the negative feedback is the best feedback because that's where you know, okay, radio, I can draw a line under that. That's what I need to work on. Mm-hmm. Um and that's how you improve. And and those people are the motivating ones, you know. Yes. So yeah, it's hard, hard work, you know. Mm. And 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 but the, the the benefit is, you know, my dad used to always say to me, um, "You only get out of life what you put into it." <laughs> and and it's but it's really true, you know. And the more you know, the more you want to know, and the more you you know, it it becomes this kind of snowballing kind of effect. Mm. And and that's good. That's good. It is. It is. And, you know, I'm probably the first to say that I don't know a lot about one little thing, but I know a little bit about a lot of things because yeah. I like to speak to people about different things. I like to read about different things. I'm always researching little bits and pieces mm-hmm. to find out those sort of things. So I'm not an expert in one little thing, but I just know enough to get by and, and dig in that little bit deeper in the areas that you need to. The interconnections are really important. Mm. Um, and I think that, yeah, it, it's, <laughs> I describe myself as a reluctant academic. I don't quite know how I got here, but um, w- when I was doing my PhD, funny, you should say that, you know, we, I had a lot of bunch of little mottos and one of them was that uh, a PhD is about learning more and more about less and less until you know almost everything about nearly nothing. <laughs> um, and that's true of some PhDs. That is definitely true. And I used to draw a little graph. You can imagine an X and Y axis and you have a little graph where there's a, a threshold line along the bottom yep. and then one peak, which goes right up really, really high. And that's how you get your PhD. If the area of that peak gets to a certain area, then that's good enough to get the tick for a PhD, right? Mm-hmm. My PhD is not like that. My PhD was, I had a bunch of different areas, which are all a little bit lower. Yeah. yeah? Right. But there, there was an interconnectedness there. And that's what made me think of what you were saying too, is knowing a whole bunch about a whole broad range is also really important and worthwhile, yeah. you know? Um, so I got my area by covering a lot of different areas, <laughs> which has actually been hugely beneficial in what I do now. Yeah. Mm, oh, definitely. Mm. So what you do now, how did you end up there? We'll go back to that first question. <laughs> <laughs> There's another girl involved. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so when I hadn't done a master's, so back then you could, if with just an undergraduate degree, you could sign up to do a PhD and you could do five years for a PhD back then. And I did because mm -hmm. remember I was extending my climbing career this time in the blue mountains and point perpendicular and in and around Sydney and New South Wales. Um, um, and so, but in order to jump from undergraduate degree to a PhD, you needed to do three courses. And so one of those, so I did a course in GPS and another course in signal processing and another course in Indonesian language because I'd learned German really quickly. Yeah. And, and I figured, oh, well, I must be a bit of a language talent. And I'd worked in Indonesia enough to know that it was a pretty simple language mm -hmm. just for street talk. Yep. Um, and my PhD was going to be volcano monitoring in the bush on a volcano, working with local people who weren't going to be able to speak English and possibly not Indonesian. Um, so I thought, I'm going to learn Indonesian language. That'll be an easy course that I need to do. Uh, second, secondly, um, uh, it's fun. You know, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. And thirdly, and here's the big thing, chicks do languages, right? <laughs> so I kind of engineered a situation that, you know, I might just sort of set things up to meet my future wife, um, which I did. <laughs> so Indo 1000, I, I, I met her, right? Uh -huh. um, yeah. So that was, that was good. And um, anyway, so I did my PhD and it was volcano monitoring. And um, what we were trying to do was we we're trying to measure using GPS, a, a, a low cost system. So we were trying to use single frequency GPS and we built our own little devices that we, we could stick on the volcano and build the whole device for, it sounds funny now, but under $3,000. So back then it was worth a lot of money. Yeah. But, so we'd have a single frequency device with a radio. It would monitor all the time GPS and send information down to a central facility. We had software that would then determine if the volcano was moving or if the, sorry, if the GPS receiver was moving up and down and if that could be interpreted as the swelling of a volcano. So that was the idea behind it. And um, to be honest, it didn't really work because when I was running it, it was in the middle of a solar maximum and the ionosphere is a huge problem on the, on the equator. And um, I really couldn't get the precision down to under five centimeters in the vertical. And I was looking for oh, better than that. So anyway, we've, we've moved on from there, but so I did my PhD and come the end of my PhD. Um, I, I don't know what happened, but somehow my girlfriend at the time got pregnant and <laughs> I, I hadn't actually finished my PhD at the time. And I was in Indonesia when I found out um, and um, gee, it focuses the mind. Yeah. yeah, it really it makes you underline your sort of deadline on, on, on your PhD. And I wasn't climbing quite so much anymore. Um, and then um, I thought, gee, what am I going to do? And a job came up for a lecturer at RMIT University. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting idea, a lecturer. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I'll apply for it. And so I applied for it and got it. So we had my first boy, Nelson, in January. And two and a half weeks later, um, everyone moved down to Melbourne and got a little place and I started lecturing at RMIT. And so I had um, two years down there yeah. and in 2003, 2004, they kind of cleaned out uh, the school. So a lot of, a lot of the former uh, professors in our school um, stepped down. So, you know, your uh, John Ruger, Bruce Forster, Bill Kersley, those sort of people, big names. In yeah, big profession. names, definitely. 
they were pretty much retired at a similar time and mm -hmm. so needed replacement. And so they got replaced with other big names like um, Jinling Wang, uh, Samsung Lim and myself. Mm -hmm. So I managed to get a position um, at UNSW and came back to Sydney um, and started in 2004. And so I've been lecturing ever since then. So I did two years RMIT yep. and then, yeah, so since 2004 at UNSW. Did you ever think when you started that you would end up on the like education side or it was just one of those things that just along the way it was there and you thought, yeah, I'll give it a go? I think if I look back with hindsight, uh, yes, I think I was always headed for that path. Yeah. Um, but whilst I was in the middle of it, if you told me in year three, year four that I was going to be a lecturer, I would have laughed at you. Yeah. And to be honest, I would have been a hopeless lecturer back then too. I needed to go overseas and do things. But just when I'd see myself working, you know, on a volcano in Indonesia or, you know, driving through 4,000 metre Puna in Argentina and looking and sitting next to Professor Bob Smiley and talking about GPS, and, mm. you know, and all these things I was so fascinated with. I re and, and wanted to go back and read up about it and learn up more about it. I realised now when I look back at that, my behaviour, what I would do naturally, I realised that, yeah, this was sort of where I was destined to. And when I speak to my mother, she says that I'm very much like my grandmother, who I never really knew, who always wanted to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so I've, I feel just incredibly privileged that I've somehow happened upon this position um, because it's just, it's, it's great. It suits me perfectly. Oh. I love it. I really, I really love it. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. you, your personality, the way that you interact with the students and you seem to be able to bring the best out in them from what, I, you know, everything that I've seen when, when I've seen you with students and stuff has just been, they kind of, they, they just soak you in <laughs> they, they just get mesmerized by you I don't know I think maybe a lot of us do sometimes when 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 you start talking and you can see that passion about what you're doing um is amazing yeah <laughs> oh well, thanks thanks Peter yeah <laughs> so, um so being at UNSW you're also you're also you do a lot with the community and industry bodies and all that kind of stuff as well to keep the surveying profession going would you say um if i'm really honest it's to keep my job because <laughs> um, if if we don't have students i don't have a job you know and no one else is putting their hand up to do it but um yeah but it is for the profession too because i you know like Surveyor, the, I think the face of the surveyor is changing. Um, but, you know, traditionally the surveyor has been oh, a bit of a grumpy old bastard, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Brown suit wearing, you know, conservative, oh, bloody introvert, you know. Um, and so I'm not protecting those, but um, um, not very good at marketing themselves. No. You know, and not, not very good at sending that message out about what we do. And we've got so much to say. When I talk to the marketing people here at uni 
And they say, oh, do you have any photos for this and this? And I say, oh, yeah, here's a couple. And they go, wow, they're great. And wh what about jobs? Do your students get jobs? It's like, oh, my God, all my graduates get two and three job offers. Really? And what, what, what sort of salaries do they get? Oh, well, you know, ACS just recently did the starting salaries. Average, average $72,000 for a 21-year-old. And they're going, are you serious? How come you haven't got students knocking down the doors? And, I don't know. <laughs> you know, we've got so much going for us. We're just really bad at sell selling that message, you know. And look, the other thing that's going against us is that we're small and niche, right? Yeah. So there's 950 or something registered surveyors in New South Wales. So there's not many of us to spread the gospel, right? Yeah. So, um, so you know, we, even if we were the best communicators in the world, we're still not going to, you know, make too much cut through. But we don't want to either. You know, that's the other thing. I, like, I, I we got to be careful we don't get too many you know? <laughs> because yeah, you know line. yeah there is that fine line but we've been underneath the fine line for a long long time and yeah. you know uh, there's a, there's a lot of tired registered <laughs> surveyors out there who need more coming through so um yeah so i feel for those guys and girls you know and there's more there's more women i'm very pleased about that um <laughs> Actually, can I just can I just say something happened uh, on the weekend too? We've got a course coming up this term. Bruce Harvey's taking it. Yeah. I think this is historical. For the first time ever, we've got more females than males in the course. Wow, that's awesome! It's it's only a small number, by the way, but it's something like seven to four. Um, <laughs> but that's still great, huh? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we yeah we need more of those messages. Um, and, and I've got to say, in the Faculty of Engineering, I'm super happy about how hard they're pushing for women in surveying. Mm. Oh, sorry, I should say women in engineering. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we need to work harder in women in surveying. But women in engineering, I think we had uh, maybe 30% of our first years last year mm -hmm. were women. And that's 30% of about 1,900 students. So something like 600, yeah, wow. 636 or something young women signing up at UNSW as first year engineering students. Mm. That's a your, lot. It is a lot. Does your course it's still do the same first year and then you branch off to survey yeah, engineering? Yeah. 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 So we have basically eight courses a year. Yeah. And in first year you have, you know, two maths, uh, physics, computing, design. Everyone does that. Everyone. Yeah. Okay. And then there's three electives. And so if you do surveying, we choose one of those electives and then you've got two options. But yeah, 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 that's the model. And then it sort of splits off in second year. So that enables flexible first year. So we get students who do flexible first year, haven't chosen a flavor of engineering in the faculty yet. Um, so I teach one of the first year, the first year surveying course, which to be honest, is more of a marketing exercise than anything. Yeah. Um, because we want to attract students who don't know anything about surveying in first year who then want to choose a flavor of engineering or change. They might do civil and go, you know what? I want to do surveying or the double degree. Or they might be doing mechanical and say, no, nah, you know what? I want outdoors. So they come to us. Yeah. yeah. So so it's an opportunity to grab students. Yeah. I, I think quite often you get those students who go in to thinking they want to do engineering and end up taking the surveying side because they realise, well, yeah, you still get the outdoors and all that sort of stuff, but there's a you're pretty much nearly guaranteed a job at the end of your career. Uh, yeah studies yeah 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 and and look it's a, it's an opening field as well you know it's an opening yeah field. Mm. It, it is um we're, we're coming well we're coming out of that massive pandemic how how did that change your teaching over the last year i mean that would have made things a bit harder we, we got a 
can I just say I love my school. We got merged from our surveying school into civil and environmental engineering in 2013, 2014. And I was shit scared that we were going to get closed down. And we, we didn't. And in fact, we were encouraged and um, our program changed and we now have a double degree and our numbers have pretty much doubled as a result of that. And something I love about our school is it's kind of the biggest school in the university or maybe the second biggest. So it's really diverse, but the people I work with are fantastic Mm -hmm. and they do such good work in such a broad range of areas and surveying fits into all of those areas. We fit into construction, geotech, structures, transport, water, water, there's two waters, Uh construction, all of those things we fit into, right? So pandemic hits, yeah? So imagine we've got a big school. We've got like 50 academics in the school. Pandemic hits. Head of school at the time sends a message around the next day saying, um, we can't have students come on campus anymore. No one in this school, no one in this school will give recordings of lectures from last year. Everyone will do live online lectures in two weeks' time. And we're going to learn how to do it. And Steve's going to teach us how to do it tomorrow. So everyone come along to this room, bring your laptop, and we're going to start. And that's what we did. All of us went in there and there was this real sense of determination of, of like, right, radio, how we do this, you know, log into this site, do this, do that. How does this work? Did you try that? Did you, you know, and everyone was on board. It was fantastic. It really felt like, radio, let's go. Let's get this happening. Mm-hmm. And in two weeks time, we went live because it happened just before there was a one week uni break. So we had that week to Uh basically had a week to work out how to do live online lectures. And what that means is students can sit in their PJs at home. We lecture to them live. And if they've got chat message questions and all this sort of stuff, that was so new back then. Right. Mm. Um, And we could engage. So we were then starting to look at, you know, ways of doing it. We had a little um, MS team site where all of the academics would be on it. And we'd say, Hey, I just had a lecture and I tried this and da, 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 da. you know, and someone else goes, oh, I forgot to hit record. And don't forget to put your little microphone down. And, you know, everyone was just helping each other. And we were also going in saying, Hey students, you know what? It's the first time we've ever done this too. And we're going to make mistakes, right? Yeah. So if we forget to hit the record button and you can see that we haven't tell us please, because you benefit out of it as well. Right. Yeah. So we're all in this together. We don't know what we're doing. Um, and, but we're going to try stuff. So, you know, tell us, help us. And it was, it, yeah, it worked out really good. So there was this, this collegiate feel was really, really good. Um, I don't like sitting down lecturing I've got to stand up and walk around so I booked a room and I'd go on campus in a room by myself Mm -hmm. and and uh, would lecture to the room but I had like an external video so that I could switch between um, the, the the PowerPoint slides and the video and then I could bring instruments in right and then I could get the video and I could point it at the instrument I could say oh see here's the little dial that does this and here let's measure a distance you know and and I'd see it right live and students would ask questions and when they asked questions my little headphone would go so I could see that they were asking a question I had a second laptop set up with all the chat messages on it so you sort of you learn how to deal with the technology and you know initially I started using just the microphone out of the laptop oh that was horrible (laughs) <laughs> so dumped that immediately, you know, and then um, started to use the microphone out of the external video. It was still not so good. Then I used a headset like I've got now, but I walking around, I garrot myself half the time. So <laughs> but my son said to me, dad, why don't you get some AirPods? So I got AirPods. That was my new thing. So I could run around doing that. I've now got wireless headset. 
yeah. that I'm going to use next term. Yeah. Tomorrow, actually, we start start tomorrow. Oh, okay. um, yeah. So so we were just evolving ideas all the time, and we, all the academics were talking to each other. And so, look, face to face is much better, no doubt, no doubt. But we sort of did the best we could. And and prax, I had to make um, online alternatives for my first years. So uh, for a leveling prac, right? How do you do that? So what I did was I went out into the park with my sons. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we did a level run and I took a whole bunch of little vignette videos. Mm -hmm. um, but my colleague, Bruce Harvey said to me, don't show how it works, show how it doesn't work. So I got my sons to make stupid mistakes. One of them videoed me and the other one, he was my Cheney. And I'd say, okay, go and walk down there, walk 40 paces, not 25 and finish up behind a tree. Right. And so, <laughs> and so we would take videos of these things with funny little things. And I'd turn to the camera and go, Oh God, what's he done now? And then it would stop and then be a little quiz question. Right. And yeah. then, and so then I'd step the students through all of this little quiz question Brilliant. and that ask stuff. And then I gave them the field notes and they could do some calculations and, you know, and so there was the quiz. That was the one thing, but I thought that's a bit lame for 10%. So the second half of it was that I said, okay, so now you've seen how to do a level run. And remember this is first years. Mm -hmm. Now you've seen how to do a level run. I now want you to go out outdoors to your local park. Right. So they had to get out of their freaking bedrooms and go to their local park. I want you to find a survey mark. And here's the New South Wales Spatial Services app. Download this app for free and find a survey mark. Don't get hit by a car. Um, you know, um, and I want you to design a survey. You can't do a survey. You don't have a tripod. You don't have a level. But I want you to design a survey. Um, by, I want at least two change points. And I want you to do this and this. Draw it up. Write it up. Tell me what you've designed often the design is the hardest thing for a first year student it's not the actual measurements that's irrelevant actually um and and so it was they didn't actually use a level but they got to think about it quite a lot so that was one exercise i did another one with gps and a whole bunch of apps got them to go and find survey marks and measure survey marks and this and that yeah. so it was able to do some things which is useful for this term because i've got a few students still in china Oh, okay. Who are going to be doing this, and so I sort of outsource those those um, tasks to them as as part of their assessment. So, yeah, it's but it's nowhere near as good as going out in the field with students and saying, right, here's a whole bunch of gear, go yeah. do this. Yeah. yeah, we're a very hands on industry, aren't yeah. we? Yeah, 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 yeah. What? Mm. What? Okay, do you? <laughs> Do you think that a degree is necessary in the industry to achieve success? Um, yes and no, but look, you don't, you don't need to have a degree to be successful. I know there's plenty of guys who've got TAFE. And in fact, there was a guy on LinkedIn, I've got it, Brad, uh, anyway, uh, who, who's, yeah, there's plenty of guys who are very successful with, with TAFE diploma qualifications because you need a degree to be a registered surveyor, but yeah. I'm not a registered surveyor. Yeah. You know, um, and I've got a degree, I've got two degrees, <laughs> but I'm not a registered surveyor. So, so you know, um, but that said, um, I am very concerned in this country about an anti-intellectualism that goes on. Oh, okay. um, and th th that is that people like to downplay themselves. We like to downplay success in Australia yeah. and, and smart people you know, who do really great things. Um, 
I, I remember when um, Malcolm Turnbull was Prime Minister and he was talking about, you know, Innovation Australia, um, and people were confronted by that. Mm. But what they don't realise is that <laughs> there's a lot of people who are really innovative who might not have formal education, you know, mm. and that's what he was talking about too, but it was misinterpreted as some kind of, you know, like, um, oh, well, if you haven't got a PhD, then you can't be an innovator, which is bullshit, you know. There's just so many farmers and stuff out there you know people out in the country who come up with really great little ideas a little widget that's innovation bang there it is you know and so as soon as someone says innovation or something like that it's misinterpreted and under the guise of this anti-intellectualism you know and I, I remember when barry jones was the education minister years ago in australia and he came into parliament and he had this sign up talking about um knowledge nation talking about new education policy right across and Barry Jones, incredibly intelligent man. Um, and he was bagged by the, by the, by the opposite side for, for, they came up with noodle nation. They made a joke of it. They made a joke of something which was in, you know, complicated. He said, you know, education nation, knowledge nation is, in, is complicated. And here's some of the complications, but we're going to get through this because we want to improve our country. Oh no, no, all too hard. Noodle nation. Let's make a joke about it. You know, pathetic. The space industry in Australia, you know, we now have a space agency, but we had to get it kicking and screaming. As yeah. soon as it used to say space agency and everyone would laugh, oh, we're going to launch rockets. Well, sorry, note to self, we were the third country in the world to launch rockets from Woomera. What a great name for a rocket range, right? Yeah. Um, you know, we used to do this stuff and somehow it's not fashionable to do it. That's bullshit. You know, the only way as an expensive country, we're an expensive country, right? Our labour is expensive. The only way that we're going to advance is if we use our noggins, mm. use our nous, and that comes from formal education, whatever it is, right? So is a degree important? Bloody oath it's important. Is research important? Yes, it is. Is a PhD important? Yeah. How many, how many local PhD students do we get coming out of this country? Hardly any. Most of my PhD students all come from overseas all come from overseas. We cannot get Australians to do a PhD in Australia because they finish their degree and they're going to get paid really well into a profession, <laughs> right? And no one wants to go on and do any extra. So this is this is the sign of a, a big looming problem in this country, I think. Yeah. Do you also so I don't think you need to to be successful, but um, it's, it's an important thing to do. Yeah. Do, do you think that the cost of university kind of outlays it for some people that they've nah, done the four nah, years, no? Nah, it's about 10 grand a year. Okay. Really, it's what, nine and a half grand a year and you don't have to pay it until you start getting paid at least $46,000 a year and then it's only like 1% of your salary and I don't think you notice it really. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, like it's not even stamp duty. Mm. No, no, I, I, you know, like, I look, I, perhaps disclaimer, I never paid fees. <laughs> I never paid fees for uni. So um, I finished in 1989. In uh, 1988, 1989, they reintroduced university fees. Yeah. So thank you, Gough Whitlam. Um, but, um, and then when you do a PhD, you, you, I wasn't paying fees. So I basically had 10 years at university and never paid any fees, mm. right? But that said, my son is now at uni and his fees for everything, because he's a domestic student, about around about nine and a half thousand, let's just say 10 a year. That's not too much. Mm. And he doesn't have to pay that. So anyone can go to uni and they just rack up a debt, but he's going to finish with about what, 30, 40 grand debt. Yeah. Which he gradually pay off. I, I don't think that's too much. It's not enough to say, don't go to uni, you know? And the thing is that when you go to uni, 
you get a high paying job and you can pay it off easily. Really? Yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, most people are buying a car for 40 grand these days. True. Yeah, that's true. You know? And then the car shits itself in five years time. In five years time, your education has just got better. Mm. <laughs> it's a growing <laughs> asset. It is. Because you learn how to learn, you know, education is just so important. And the reason that universities find themselves in this bind is because our leaders have an anti-intellectualism and they do not want to put money into higher education. They do not want to, they would outsource everything, you know, they look after private education. I mean, our public education system needs money, you know, look at TAFE. TAFE just gets screwed every freaking time a budget comes around. TAFE is so important. Oh my God. TAFE is so important. Yeah. So it just frustrates the living bejesus out of me. It really does. You know, it's such a small minded country. Like you put a dollar in, you get $5 out of it. God's mm-hmm. sake, just put some money into education. And they've proved that they can do it when, the, when COVID happened, right? Suddenly there was money for everything, you know? <sighs> yeah. And I, I think, <laughs> I think the sad thing when you, you know, when you talk about the TAFE side of it is that, and you said earlier, you know, we're, we're such a small little niche and the surveying sits under an umbrella with your plumbing and your electrical and your building and construction and all that sort of stuff who get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students each term mm. and surveying so small it kind of gets forgotten about. Mm. Mm. Yeah, we've got to fight for it. Yeah. We've got to fight for it, you know. We've got to be loud about it, you know. I don't know how much louder you can get about it, though. I mean, we we have. Been. <laughs> I'm pretty loud. <laughs> we have been, yeah. you know, yeah. fight, trying to fight for it. It's very mm. sad at the moment. Mm. Anyway. Mm. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed part one with Craig. Stay tuned next week for part two. Defining boundaries with Peter Cox.